What role does movement play in releasing what scientists call hope molecules, whether it's a quiet walk in nature or vigorous dancing to Bhangra music? Shout out to all my Punjabi brothers and sisters listening. What is the role of the, quote, wandering nerve in regulating our parasympathetic nervous system and helping us feel safe? And how does pranayam or breath work help enhance this? And what is Joy is My Justice about? How did an integrative and psychedelic medicine physician learn to thrive and embrace with gusto all that life has to offer after her three-year-old son received the challenging diagnosis of Duchenne muscular dystrophy? Stay tuned as we touch on these and many other topics on this week's episode of Untether Your Life. Welcome to Untether Your Life, a show that empowers you to break free of templates related to career, relationships, and managing mental and physical health, and looks at key issues impacting the South Asian diaspora. I am your host, Nikhil Torzakar, and I'm passionate about the power of conversation to catalyze change. One of the most rewarding parts of hosting this podcast is connecting with brilliant, compassionate polymaths whose knowledge and experience extend across numerous realms. This week's guest exemplifies this characterization in spades. Dr. Tanmeet Sethi, MD, is an integrative and psychedelic medicine physician, activist, TEDx speaker, and author of the incredibly powerful book, Joy is My Justice. She has dedicated her career to caring for marginalized patients all over the globe, from Seattle to Puerto Rico to Ukraine, as a senior faculty member at the Center for Mind-Body Medicine. She is also a clinical associate professor and a primary clinical investigator on psilocybin at the University of Washington. In her clinical practice in Seattle, Tanmeet weaves modern and ancient medicine to catalyze the most profound healing. And with that, let's get untethered. So Tanmeet, so much alignment, as I was telling you before the show, uh, that we'll dive into. So I'm really excited to have you on the show. Is there anything else you want to share beyond the information that I just shared with the audience? Uh, You know, just that I'm also a mother to three, which is a really important part of my life. And so I have three children who are now teenagers and young adults. That's important. Yeah. Otherwise, I think you got it. So obviously, the big headline right now is the book, Joy is My Justice, which I've read. It's an incredible book. But I wanted to give you the opportunity to talk about it at a high level, basically, kind of what prompted your decision to write this book? What are you hoping to get out of it? Some lessons learned from the process, if you could walk us through that. I mean, it really started in this sense of my own life story. So, uh, you know, I was nine months pregnant with my third child. And I received a fatal diagnosis for my second, who was barely three at the time. And it was really, honestly, Nikhil, a wake-up call, a sort of revolution in my own body that how could I be happy again? You know, how could a mother be happy after her child has this kind of diagnosis? And it was in this search for how to be happy that I realized that actually happiness is very different from joy. And that really prompted the book. And I've been working with a very complex mental health population for 25 years now and really culling into the deep sense of what makes people feel lost and disconnected and sad and anxious and really understanding through my own personal and professional paths converging that happiness and joy are very different. And if we can understand that and really sink into joy, it can be the most intense liberation we can feel. So that's really what prompted it. 
And I, I thought that was one of the most interesting things because language is so important, right? A lot of times I think there's this muddling of meaning when we use words interchangeably that really have distinct connotations. And just at the outset, there's a couple more that I want to get to, but the one that's obviously first and foremost would be the difference between joy and happiness. Because it's something that I always thought Merriam-Webster, that's the first synonym is for happy, <laughs> happiness and joy, right? But uh, in your book and on your podcast, you talk about how they're two very different things. So I'd love if you could walk us through that. So this is really the crux of, of it, is that happiness is really a cognitive evaluation. It's really a sense of what is right with my life and what outcomes are feeling good to me. And intellectual sort of evaluation. It is binary. It's either you're happy or you're not. And and Nikhil, I really mean this. I'll take happiness any day. I'm not denouncing happiness. Right. But joy is very different. Joy is an embodied experience. It actually comes from the same deep well that our pain comes from. It comes from that same well of connection, of love, of meaning. And this sense that if we close down to our pain, which normally people think of doing so they can be happy, if right. we close down to our pain, we close down to everything. And we actually close down to joy, which lives on that same continuum. So it's in this process of understanding that joy is not binary. We can hold joy while we hold deep heartache, while we hold fear or anger. And, you know, really, I don't know if there's a even more apt time of the world to be talking about this, but really, you know, there's been a series of events, I feel like increasingly since a couple of years before the pandemic that have really mm -hmm. taught us that the world is hard. It is really hard. And sometimes people can feel guilty to feel good. But because of everything else that other people yeah, are going through. Yeah, exactly. exactly. But when we understand that joy is very different than being happy about something, it's about mm -hmm. living in that river, that continuum along our pain. And I, we can unpack that a little more. Then we understand that joy can live with us no matter what we're feeling. And in fact, I would challenge everyone that not only is it possible to have joy no matter what we're feeling, it's actually essential that if we don't have joy along with all the hard, it will be almost impossible to hold all the hard in any kind of functional way. And mm -hmm. I think our mental health conversation is honestly doing us a disservice by mixing up the two words. Because when we say you can hack your way to happiness, which don't get me wrong, I think there are hacks, so to speak. But when we have a cognitive construct in people's lives that isn't happy, people who are in war zones, people who mm -hmm. have lost deep loss and grief, people who are facing chronic grief. You know, in my case, I'll just take mine is neither the hardest nor the easiest, right? We all right. have different lives. But I can tell you the constructs of my life are not happy. My child is actually quite close to the end and it is not happy, but my life is full of joy. And that is very different because if I am made to feel like being happy is the goal, then I only feel more broken. And I'm sure that somebody listening to that will resonate with that because we can feel more broken the more unable we are to be happy. That's such an incredible walkthrough, Tanmeet, and resonates very deeply with me and my experience. And this is something I'd like to unpack a little bit more because I would say the times when I've experienced what you're talking about, which is that 
joy, not to oversimplify it, but it's almost like joy is almost like a kissing cousin of uh, pain. <laughs> because yeah. sometimes, like you said, you're drawing from the same well. There are a lot of immersive experiences like breath work, psychedelic therapy. But yeah, that was something that I experienced, you know, when I was doing some breath work sessions, is that I was tapping into such deep primal parts of my psyche and my soul that, you know, my face, you know, I was just, my face was just covered in tears, but not because of sadness or anything, but just because of this profound realization, you know, and, and you touch on this in the book as well. It's kind of like that aesthetic chill that you touch on a little bit, yeah. right? Just tapping into that really just profound, sublime state. Um, and so I bring that up because looking into your journey a little bit and, and sort of how you've gotten closer to joy, Breathwork does seem to be a big component of that. And I would love to hear more about your experience with it. Just on a conceptual level, just for listeners, because this is something we talk about a lot on the show, but what is the power of the breath or, or prana mm. or chi or whatever, you know, how it's conceptualized? If you could talk to us about that just at a conceptual level and, and sort of how that's played out in your life. Yeah. Yeah, I dove into your work around breath work and I really resonated and am aligned with all the study that you've done. I would say that breath is crucial. So I think on a metaphorical, maybe somebody would say spiritual level, breath is literally, as you said, in those words, prana, chi, ruach, these words mean life force. Breath right. is literally our life force. And obviously without breath, we would not be here. So we know that. But I don't think that we understand that or give it enough credit day to day. That actually there is wisdom in even the way we speak to each other. If you notice, we'll tell people if someone's really anxious and kind of getting kind of heightened up, someone will say, take a deep breath, take a deep breath. Right. There's a reason we say that. There's a reason we pat people in the center of their back when we are comforting mm -hmm. them, which is actually energetically speaking, the posterior heart channel, you know, and, and a very important place for breath work. Mm -hmm. There's a reason we do that. It is embedded in the wisdom of what has been handed down to us that the comfort that the breath can bring and the spaciousness that the breath can offer. Now, you actually alluded to this when you said that sublime sort of tearful moment. You know, if you really think about it, when we work with the breath at a deep level, what we do is make space for what needs to emerge, you know, whether it be tears or anger or sadness or joy or grief. And mm -hmm. This way that breath works is in that sort of mystical, somebody might say metaphorical level, quite powerful. Then there's also the physiology of the breath, the way that it actually deeply activates our ventral vagus nerve and, and allows our nervous system to not only, I would really challenge people, it is not just about relaxing. It mm -hmm. is about connection, about giving our body the message that we are safe in this moment. Mm -hmm. It is safe to open up and connect. You know, when you really think about that, the breath is doing so many things on a simultaneous level, right? Yeah. And you alluded to one term that I'd love to unpack a little bit. And, and listeners who are interested, I highly recommend to check out the book, Joy is My Justice, because you do an amazing job of really unpacking it. But maybe the abridged version of the vagus nerve, because it is so, uh, it's just, I think, one of the unsung heroes of the human body in terms of the power it has. If you could touch on that and maybe how to harness the power of it. 
Yeah, this is one of my favorite topics because it is not only fascinating, I think, but maybe I'm a little bit of a nerd like that, but it is also, I think, empowering. So the vagus nerve, which vagus comes from the Latin for wandering, and it wanders from the base of our brainstem all the way through our chest, our thorax, down below our diaphragm, through our abdomen. It's the longest nerve in the body. It's actually the main nerve of our parasympathetic nervous system, which is our, as people call it, relaxation system. I don't know if that's completely true, but that is a good way to sort of understand it. Mm -hmm. That sort of sense of what do we need to do when we're not trying to figure out how to survive in this moment? How do we tend Mm -hmm. to ourselves? So we rest, we digest, we absorb nutrients, we allow our gut to work well, we allow our heart to beat normally and our breath to go comfortably. It's also that nerve of connection and safety. And so, as I said, it it has different branches. It has the ventral or front-facing branch and it has the dorsal or back branch. And in this ventral vagus branch, it's really about opening up to the world connecting to ourselves, modulating those really essential functions that are not what we do when we're trying to fight off the tiger or run from a attacker. And even this dorsal vagus, I just want to point out, will allow us to shut down and completely shut down in a moment of complete stress. It is actually what most children do in moments of traumatic environments. We sort of shut down and numb to what's happening so we can make it through. Those are all essential functions that allow us to take care of ourselves. What is hard is that if we're under chronic stress or always in this vigilant mode, then we can stay either numbed out or not connected and opening up to the world. And what we want to do is try to bring as many moments of safety and connection into our body so that we can come back into the world. We can connect. We can tend and befriend ourselves. And so... This is where people have probably heard about deep diaphragmatic breathing or box Mm -hmm. breathing, guided imagery or breath work, um, yoga nidra, or, you know, whatever the platform or the tool they're using. Mm -hmm. All of them do this common thing of allowing our vagus nerve to be engaged. And so, you know, for me, it's really a matter of understanding. I don't know if anyone listening can resonate with this, but I have lived in a very vigilant way in my life. And that is not something I'm excited about. I'm trying to, you know, sort of help heal that. But I grew up in a place where it was a little scary. I I grew up in a very rough neighborhood. Also, I grew up at a time when South Asians, especially six with turbans, were harassed and bullied and not understood at all. But growing up was hard. And I was scared a lot. And so I remained vigilant most of my life. And and I would say still I'm watching my back most days on the street. At the same time, you know, this moment where I received this diagnosis for my son puts you in a vigilant mode, which is different. What else bad could happen? What more could happen in my life? You know, this sort of hypervigilance or constant vigilance is something that wears down our body and our soul over time. And so this idea of waiting to not be vigilant so you can be joyful is the wrong approach. What I would say is the more you can bring in moments of joy into your life, the more you can ease your nervous system so that you are not as vigilant all the time. Because joy is really about telling your nervous system you're okay right now. Even if you're not okay tomorrow or the next moment, right now, 
you can have a moment of connection and safety. It's a complex topic, but I hope that's a little bit of an intro to listeners. Yeah, absolutely. Because I think the human body is really a mystery, right? And I think that in our Western world, in the Western framework, there's this false compartmentalization, right, between the mind and the body. I think a lot of times if you have like an ulcer or if you have There are obviously, don't get me wrong, I'm not hating on pharmaceutical industry or surgery by any means. I mean, there are interventions that are absolutely necessary, but I do think there's often a knee-jerk reaction where it's like, oh, you know, I'm having stomach problems, so let me take some Prilosec, or I'm I'm having headaches. There's never this sense of what can we tap into what, what's been called the inner pharmacy, right? Through things like right. breath work, through things like movement, just that somatic experience that I think really behooves us, you know, to tap into. This is almost like this amazing, sophisticated technology. And instead, we just, you know, go to pop the latest pill, not really realizing that a lot of times we're playing Russian roulette with our bodies, you know, because these medications Sure, they might take care of a symptom, but it might turn into a game of whack-a-mole where you're having other symptoms and then you take another pill, you know, and it's this, it's this chain reaction. And that kind of brings me to my next topic, which is as South Asians, I think as members of the South Asian diaspora, and we talk about this on the podcast a lot, is I think we have a lot of um, what I would say like wisdom at our fingertips or in our DNA because there's so much like Ayurveda and Pranayam and, and that's Really, the the mission of this podcast is to bring that to the fore. But, um, you know, that kind of dovetails with my next topic, which is just the broad topic of growing up in the South Asian diaspora. You touched on this a little bit as well, where you talked about now we have two candidates for president who are of South Asian descent. Not a big fan of either of them, but that's another topic. But the point is, I think South Asians, we have more of a seat at the table, and and I'm very happy to see that, but it wasn't always the case. I wanted to understand a little bit more, if you could touch on this, uh, Tanmeet, about your experience as a member of the South Asian diaspora, maybe just how it shaped your journey, both good and bad, and sort of, you know, how it's evolved. Yeah. Well, this could be a whole podcast, Nikhil. It's really good. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) But I think just to give a short summary of that, I would say the good is, is so plentiful. I think that you know, growing up, uh, even in the diaspora, rooted in my culture and my parents really sticking and, and trying to tether themselves to that was still really good for me. It gave me a solid foundation in faith, in um, even though I wouldn't consider myself religious, I am very mm-hmm. uh, culturally attached to my faith, to community and to culture and to honoring of my elders and my ancestors. I think that those values live in me so strongly that those are some of the biggest things that I've given to my children, which is, you know, really this sense that none of us are here because of ourselves alone. We're all here because of the work our ancestors have done to bring us here. We're all here because of some forces bigger than us, whether you believe in God or nature or the, you know, whatever community, some forces bigger than me have allowed me to do what I do. Even if you don't look in the mystical sense, you know, I just think Mm -hmm. about my partner, my husband, I, I could never do the beautiful work I do in the world without him. Never. And he's never front facing, but he's there mm-hmm. allowing me to do that work. You know, and that 
comes from my upbringing to always look around and honor who else is connected to this. I also feel like my culture really allows me an understanding that there's more to this than the Western way of looking at things. And Mm -hmm. that really informed my medical training. I never went to medical school thinking I was going to be a regular Western doctor. I grew up with basically Ayurveda in my house and we hardly ever saw a Western doctor. But I I craved the mixing of the two and that's why I went to mm-hmm. medical school. And the hard things are some of the limiting beliefs, to be honest. You know, my my family has really, there's a lot of stigma and shame associated with hardship. And so Mm -hmm. even with my son, something that I could not have avoided, many of your listeners will understand this word, but I hear a lot of bachata, bachata, which is like poor thing, you know, about my son and about me as a mother. And, and, you know, frankly, it's very upsetting to me because that is, I had to unlearn a lot of that and to say, you know, his life is still a value if he cannot walk or he cannot think like you and if he won't live as long as you. And I've actually had to untie a ton of my cultural upbringing around what success looks like and what the value of your life is like. Now, you know, I am a very high achieving, my American friends say overachieving woman. And some of that comes Mm -hmm. from my upbringing. I'm proud of all of that. And I also had to undo some of my tie to what it to always being productive and to Mm -hmm. understanding that my son who cognitively and physically is disabled still has value. Now that's Mm -hmm. been a big thing for me to untie and unpack in my culture. And maybe that resonates for you or some of your listeners that we're not homogenous, but in general, there's very little value attached to someone whose life does not have full ability as a typical person. And so there are things I've had to both I'm so proud of and things I've had to really wrestle with. It is, I mean, and you hit it on the head, I mean, because it is such a mixed bag, because I think there is so much that we can be proud of in addition to tools we talked about earlier with Ayurveda and Pranayam. Just in terms of the achievement, I think our people have done so amazing in this country. And I'm, you know, very proud. But, you know, the flip side of that is it does impose a lot of stress. You know, even if, even if, I mean, my parents, I don't think they were like super, you know, they didn't drill into me. There was obviously a lot of comparison, but I think just the onus of matching up to that benchmark can really be very stressful. And so I think that the thing I like about what our generation is doing is that we are giving our kids, I I would say like what I always say is ripping up those templates. It's not Mm. this limited menu of, you know, doctor, engineer, or failure anymore. It's like, you can do something like our daughter. I'm not saying like I'm parent of the year or anything, but you know, our daughter is, (laughs) our daughter's in art school. And, you know, I mean, I think, I don't know if, if this was your experience, but with our parents, because they had a very myopic view, it was very tunnel vision by necessity. It wasn't anything they did wrong, but they were looking through this limited kaleidoscope, so to speak. Whereas we have the luxury of having grown up in this country and we know it works and doesn't. It's better if they explore something that might not be the quote unquote right, whatever the hell that means, the right path versus going into like medicine. Like I was pre-med and I, it just was not my bag. It would be better for them to go to something that's a little bit out of the box or maybe off the beaten path and achieve their dharma, achieve their purpose versus trying to be that square pig in the round hole. I really, I couldn't agree with you more. I call it rewriting our story. I think it's the same Mm. as the template idea. And 
you know, this came up for me pretty strongly. This is related to the book as well. But um, when I gave mm-hmm. my TED talk, which was on the healing power of gratitude, that was a really hard thing for me. You know, I kind of wrestled. I didn't understand why I was wrestling with it. But even up until two months before my talk, I was thinking of changing my topic. And I sort of had this guise for myself that it was because I wanted to have the best topic. And really, when I looked deep and I got really quiet with myself, what I realized was I had, you know, a limiting belief because we don't we don't talk openly about those kind of things in my family culture. You know, you kind of hush hush it. You kind of put it under. You act like everything's okay. I realized I'm about to get on YouTube forever in permanent, you know, form and say that my child is dying and my younger kids who are too young to understand that are also going to hear that. And what is going to happen? You know, is this okay? It was in that moment that I realized, no, this is my turn to rewrite the story because there's nothing to be ashamed of here. And there's also... I'm proud of the fact that I have learned how to resource myself through this and that I don't feel ashamed. And I feel so proud of my son. And I feel like his life has touched so many, you know, through my book, but even before that. And so it took a lot for me, but I think it's what you're saying. You know, it's our generation's opportunity to say we can do it differently while still honoring who we are and where we come from. On the topic of your son, I I can only imagine that it had to be a very difficult journey for you. But you say something really beautiful in the book, a couple things, obviously, but um, there are a couple things. One thing that really resonated with me is that you talk about, um, and I can resonate with this as a parent, but you talk about what Zubin taught you. Maybe if you could expound upon that a little bit more, um, and I think that will resonate with anyone who's a parent, regardless of their situation. But if you could touch on that a little bit more about what the experience of you know, having a child with DMD and kind of what that uh, what that taught you. Oh, or what is teaching me? It's still ongoing. It's mm-hmm. it's so powerful, ongoing. I think there are a few things that uh, that always stick out for me. One is that he has taught me. Honestly, I thought I knew, and I'm not saying other parents don't know, but I thought I understood the depths of unconditional love by just being a parent. But it wasn't until I had a child who destroyed every dream I had of what it would look like and had to dig deep into how to love in authentic ways Mm -hmm. without expecting or hoping that things would be different. And, you know, that went from him not being able to talk or give me love the way my other children did to even, you know, obviously he will not go to college or marry or, you know, have grandchildren and all this stuff. It took this understanding of loving for loving's sake that honestly, I I could cry right now because it feels like the greatest lesson of my life. And it allows me with my other children, I'm not saying I'm parent of the year either. So I mess up all, oh my gosh, the the amount of times I have to apologize to my children, which by the way, that's rewriting our story. I don't think my my parents ever apologize to me. (laughs) But I do. I apologize to them because sometimes I lose it. And sometimes I say things I don't want to say, but parenting is hard work. But in general, it's it's hard work still, but I am really able to untether myself, to use your podcast's language, untether myself from my dream for even my other two children. You know, because I think we all have dreams for our children and it's not wrong to have them. I think it's a beautiful mm-hmm. part of parenting, but often 
they don't fulfill those dreams, you know, and they can be different than what you thought, or they can be very unlike you. And that can be hard. And I'm able to really be with that and understand that what my role or my dharma as a parent is, is to love these beings just Mm -hmm. because I need to love them. Not because they do well, or they're a good child, or they're nice to me, or they're good to other people. I hope for all of that. But in the end, my role and my the beautiful part of my dharma is to love them just because that's why we're all here. That feels like the most valuable lesson that anyone could ever have given me. And so regardless of how many more years I have with him, I will feel like he walks with me on this earth until I'm gone because that sits with me in every relationship. It's interesting just to see the evolution of our culture in terms of, you know, our roles as parents, because you said it so perfectly. It's like we had this perception of our parents and we kind of held them on this pedestal and almost this mythical conception like that they, you know, they were infallible and that everything they said was gospel. And that I feel like our generation, there's more of a collaborative relationship with our kids. There's so many goofy, silly things. Like I, if you ever looked at the memes I've exchanged with my 19-year-old <laughs> daughter, it's like, you know, you'd be like, what are you, five? (laughs) But, you know, I I just, I find it refreshing to see that we as parents, you know, in this, in the South Asian diaspora, I think it's going to put our kids on a better path to see, to show that human side of us, to show that we're just like them. Obviously we have some more wisdom, some more, sometimes bad habits, but the point is, I don't think that we are holding ourselves to this impossible standard with our kids that maybe our, our parents did. Circling back to the topic of culture, there was something that uh, you talk about a little bit, the importance of movement, because you you talk about your love for Bhangra, which is something that, you know, as an honorary Punjabi, you know, I'm Punjabi by association, but <laughs> I can attest to that is that there is something really amazing when you get out on the dance floor. And if you could talk a little bit more about that, Tanmeet, about the benefits movement can have and kind of aligning what we had said earlier about sometimes how the therapeutic benefits can sometimes either mimic or surpass the benefits that you'll achieve from chemical interventions like antidepressants. Yeah. Well, and I love that you call it movement as I do and not exercise because I do think the body of literature on exercise is vast and undeniable. Yet, I think that the literature also really shows us that any kind of movement can be helpful. And it doesn't have to be 30 minutes a day for six days a week, et cetera. What we know from movement in the science, um, I'll go into, but what I would first say is that I think that movement, I think that emotions are energy in motion. And I think what I tell my Mm -hmm. patients almost every day, at least one of them, you know, if your body doesn't move, your mind won't move either. And I really believe that is that if we're feeling stuck, that we need to move our bodies so that we can move some energy and see what comes out, what emerges. Dance is my favorite form of movement. But what I'll Mm -hmm. say is that, you know, sometimes I dance and I cry. It's not Mm. because dancing makes me feel good necessarily, but it brings me to my center. It brings me back to what I need to feel. It moves things in me so that I can see what's sitting right at the surface so I can feel it. And so sometimes I cry in joy. Sometimes grief emerges as well. And sometimes it's just pure flow state, you know, feeling like I'm in my body and connecting to what is really moving in me and really understanding that 
you know, you hear this word embodied a lot now. Now we're using it a lot more, but they really breath work, yoga, movement of any kind really are ways of embodiment, of getting back into that connection and not staying all the way up here. But the science is also really clear that um, mm-hmm. scientists even call the myokines, the anti-inflammatory molecules that come from our muscles when we move, they call them hope molecules because they do so much good in the body. It's quite fascinating. Mm-hmm. They're anti-inflammatory. Even the smallest muscle contractions can bring out those myokines. There's endless literature on how muscles and the movement of our muscles is our organ of longevity in terms of how we process our glucose, how our mitochondria are are regenerated and restored. So really looking at movement as longevity, we know that people who move their body every day actually live longer. We know that people Mm -hmm. who move their body outside in nature actually decrease cortisol and stress hormones. The science is endless. But what I would tell people is that you don't even need the science. If you just notice what it feels like in your body as your feet touch the earth, if you're able to walk, if you're Mm -hmm. dancing, if you're moving, I'll tell you, my son in his wheelchair is one of the fiercest dancers out there on the bungalow floor and he will not get off and he can barely move now, but he is out there and the joy in his body and his face is clear. I think children understand this way more than us. They they move innately, instinctively, and then we get self-conscious and it's harder for us <laughs> to move in front of people. And so really, if we understand that movement is core to living, that really we were never meant to sit and be stationary, then we can understand that movement is actually a spiritual practice. For me, walking and dance are spiritual practices. Yoga, being on the mat, actually feels to me like a blissful state. And I'm not saying Mm -hmm. when I'm in yoga class or doing yoga on my own, I'm not just in some meditative state for 60 minutes. That's not what I mean. But it's blissful because I feel like I'm in my body. Whereas Mm -hmm. most of the day, I think we walk around with our heads kind of disconnected. We're just cognitively thinking everything out instead of feeling into it. So movement is really key. And in fact, you know, you're bringing back up breath work. It is so vital to understand that the reason, one of the reasons that breath work can be so powerful and so emotional is because we move into our body in, in such a powerful way. You know, I have a lot of people asking me about psychedelics and wanting to try it, mm. but feeling scared. And I will tell you, one of my most powerful psychedelic experiences to date has been a holotropic breathwork session. And so understanding that we can get medicine from stepping into our body. We can get medicine from breathing, from moving, from noticing. I mean, this is what I think people really, I feel like, can get power from, you know, that this is your opportunity. You don't need a cabinet of medication Now, we need that too sometimes, but we also have a whole cabinet within us that we don't open most days of the week. I mean, that, and that goes back to what I was saying earlier was just that the body, there is this inner pharmacy that I think it really, we need to, we need to really tap into that through things like breath work. And as you mentioned, psychedelic therapy, and this kind of dovetails into the next thing I wanted to find out more about. You talk about the center for mind-body medicine. I want to make sure that that's the correct topic. Mm -hmm. 
I wanted to understand a little bit more about what does the Center for Mind-Body Medicine do and kind of uh, what's your role there? So I'm one of the senior faculty there. And what we do is we really go into communities that have been affected by traumatic disasters, whether that's school shootings, hurricanes, wildfires, mm-hmm. war zones. And really work with people in small group settings. Uh, we do have large groups, but then we take everyone into a small group as well. And we learn different skills for gaining awareness and presence in our body. It's really about coming back to our body, noticing mm-hmm. and getting messages and healing with our trauma. Uh, it sounds like a big uh, promise, but what I'll tell you is <laughs> it's quite powerful. What can happen when people get in a small group and actually experience the power of guided imagery, of biofeedback, of meditation, Mm -hmm. of movement, of shaking and dancing, of writing exercises in a reflective, safe group container that then allows us a place to be accepted and not judged. No one is tried to be fixed. No one is considered broken. There are very safe guidelines in a group and we learn and experience together. And it is life-changing, Nikhil, really Mm -hmm. life-changing. It has been for me, but it is for all of our participants. We're in Gaza. We're in, uh, you know, we're in Ukraine. Um, Just we go wherever people need to heal. And Mm -hmm. uh, it's powerful, powerful work. And so I think that, you know, we've known since, especially since the days of Dean Ornish's trials with small groups in nutrition, that really small groups is one of the medicine. Being in in a container where we can connect to others is powerful work. And so in a nutshell, that's what we do, but it's really a way to learn mind body medicine skills in a safe setting, a supportive setting where we can heal together in the collective community. And that's an interesting topic you touch on, Tanmit, because what's interesting is, you know, there's the Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? And, you know, obviously safety is the, the one that's the most important. I want to understand, so so what what I'm hearing is with a lot of these communities that are affected by a lot of strife, you talk about, I think, going to Puerto Rico after the hurricane, you talk about U- Ukraine. Is this something that, you know, you're, you're able to, because it sounds like a very daunting task, right? Because people are so fixated on survival and their fight or flight mechanism there is is so activated. But it sounds like you're able to sort of introduce this notion of joy and this notion of mind-body connection, like even even in these types of environments? I love that question because I think what you're asking is so important is really in the undercurrent of what you're asking is how we heal when we are so in hurt, in pain. So some of our communities have had a little time to heal. Some are right in the thick of it. You know, like you said, the Ukraine was as planes mm-hmm. were going up above head. And Marjorie Stoneman Douglas, after the school shooting, which was on February 14th, we were there only in July. So barely, mm-hmm. you know, a few months after. So people are really in a lot of pain. Puerto Rico, the same thing. Wildfires in California. What we find, though, it's not about saying can people heal right now? It's about saying, what can we give to communities so that they can see the hope that healing can happen? But Mm -hmm. what I'm always astonished by is that even in the thick of it, I remember in Ukraine, especially, you know, people in my group saying, I haven't laughed or felt a smile come across my face in a month since this shooting started, right? Since the war started. People coming back the next day and saying, that's the first night I've slept in a month. These kinds of outcomes are powerful because what people feel is 
there is hope for me. And really, it's not just about can people heal? It's about can we hold this pain? Can we figure out a way to sit with this pain? And so what we find is that people in the most acute settings, for instance, will for the first time in a movement, in a shaking or dancing kind of experience, will realize and will cry almost always will realize they have not moved their body. They have been stuck in fear and paralyzed almost. And so as we talked about, that kind of movement allows their body to free and they're, they are allowed to see how much pain they're actually in. Coming back full circle on all the things you're saying, it's really about giving people those moments to connect to their vagus nerve, to say, I'm safe right now, even though the world and my environment is not safe, that I can connect and that connecting is a healing medicine. And even just expressing how sad they are is a form of medicine because they're mm -hmm. unable to do that at home, sometimes trying to be strong for their children or, or for their patients. We worked with a lot right. of psychologists who were just taking care of so many people who were in pain. I am also astonished sometimes. I will tell you, after 20 years of doing that work, Sometimes I go into a community thinking, I'm not sure. And then here we go. We're all just human. I think the arc of our soul is to heal. Our body and our soul want to heal if given the space to do it in. Oh, I like that. I wish I'd written that in my book. But, you know, yeah. I think that that is the arc of what people as humans really need. And if we allow and give them the space to do that, powerful things can happen. So sometimes it's just the start of people's healing journey, but sometimes it is the most powerful igniting that they could have ever had. When I first learned about, you know, the work you're doing with these really devastated communities, I just thought, wow, that is quite an ambitious uh, undertaking, you know, to it's almost like I, I would say like skipping a grade almost in terms of the journey towards joy and, you know, kind of going up the Maslow's hierarchy there. But um, but no, that's that's incredible. And I think that it will really be instructive to people because I think they will see that if people given these horrible circumstances, given these really unenviable cards, if they can experience joy then there's, you know, there's hope for, for the rest of us, you know? So. Yeah. And I think something you said, I think is so important because what you're really saying is that if we can feel these moments of safety, those are moments where joy can ignite. And it is that whole idea that if we are not safe in our body, we cannot feel joy. But if we can get that safety, then we can open up to that. And I just think what you said was really important. But in that hierarchy, if we can't get that connection to our vagus nerve and feel that safety, then it's very hard to have hope even that we can feel a different way. The title of the show is Untether Your Life, as we talked about, right? The mission of this podcast is to empower listeners to rip up those templates and really forge a new path. And I think this is something you've done an incredible job of, you know, as a, as a woman, as a South Asian, as you know, you've just in every box, you've, I think, checked what it means to untether your life. I would love if you could share with the listeners based on your experience, Tanmeet, how they can untether their lives. Well, I think the first step is to see where you're tethered. I don't think I understood that, Nikhil. I don't think until I really had to understand how will I ever be joyful? It wasn't until then that I realized that I really wasn't that joyful before that. I was happy or unhappy, but I had not really dug deep into that well to find joy. 
And so the first step is just noticing where are you tethered to a limiting belief, to an old story, to a template that was given to you by beautiful culture, ancestry, family, that you don't Mm -hmm. have to refuse all of that to refuse one template is what I would say. And so really finding that for yourself, you know, and having then the courage to say that I will not be excluded if I rewrite this template. I don't know if you've ever felt that or resonate with that, but you know, sometimes I would feel that if I tell this one family member that you did this wrong and you didn't, you weren't there for me, that then I'll lose everything I have because my family is such a sense of belonging. But that's not true. Actually, you forge deeper connection. People respect that. We all learn together. I think we heal together in community. So it's first noticing where you're tethered, then understanding that you get the chance, you have every right, every right to rewrite a template and still honor where you came from and who you are. And I think those things are really crucial in in my experience. And then I would say to really get community behind you, get support. You know, who is it that you can talk to, process this with and learn and grow with? You know, I don't think Mm -hmm. any of us do this alone. So I'm not some superhero. You know, I'm a woman who had the courage to rewrite a template, but then took community support, a therapist, my husband, you know, my community. So really try to gain that kind of safety of the collective around you and then try to see how you can rewrite your story a little bit more. Because the truth is, I think, you know, we were never meant to not change and evolve. We've only grown and gotten stronger by evolving to different things. And so I think rejection of a template feels scary to people because it feels like, you know, then I'm I'm destroying something. And I would say, you know, it's almost like I think of it as I'm just up-leveling what I already, this beautiful life and culture and family that I have. And I don't know if you do much cooking, but, you know, a lot of times... Mm-hmm. You follow the recipe to the letter and it it almost like it tastes like crap, you know, because it's like, and especially in Indian cooking, you know, I think that's pretty common. My wife, I don't think she's ever used a recipe, but when she has, like I said, it's never turned out to liking because everyone has a different preference. Everyone has a different background. So I'd say that analogy applies to life as well, because I think that a lot of us have been cooking according to a recipe and somehow we're we're confused when it doesn't resonate when it just seems a little off kilter so yeah we really i think do have to i don't know if you're into jazz but just apply a little bit of improv into into our day to day you know um, i love that i love that analogy yeah. yeah that's such a good one and and i also think that people don't understand that when we rewrite our template it's a way to discover the deepest meaning and purpose of your life I think that if we don't actually understand what template we need to rewrite, that Mm -hmm. we not only stay in a box, we get stagnant. And so there's a way that we think that it's scary to rewrite a story, but I don't know that we can thrive without doing so. I think we were always meant to do that, is to kind of up-level a little bit each time. And touching on the thing you said about community, I think one thing I want to bring up is it has to be a community that serves you. Because I think being part of this collectivist culture, the South Asian diaspora, there is this notion that 
community, you know, oh, there's this lokia kainge, right? There's this yeah. whole, like, what will people think? Where it's almost like we're hypnotized because we're part of this, the Indian community, the temple or the gurdwara or whatever it is. That community can be toxic. So yeah. I think it is very important. And that's not to say for everybody. There are a lot of people that community resonates with. For me personally, that wasn't the case. So I think when we say community, it's really important to not just accept, because that can be a template as well, that community that you grew up with. Find the one that that really works with you and, and as they say, makes your heart sing. So yeah, mm, absolutely. Yeah, I, I love mean, that. What, what you're saying resonates 100%. So Tanmeet, where can people find you if they're interested in learning more about your book, learning more about your platform? Uh, where would be the best place? Yeah, thanks for asking. Well, I would love it if people bought the book or asked for it at their library. I love it when libraries have the book. Uh, you can also uh, find me on my Substack. So I write every week with my community on Substack about all of these topics that we're talking about. It's at my name, Thanmeet Sethi, MD, on substack.substack.com. And it's called Beautiful and Brutal. And then I'm also, in terms of social media, I'm most on active on Instagram. And I love hearing from people there. And I, I will say for all the things that people don't like about social media, which, you know, I can get down my own rabbit hole sometimes, but I have found people like you are connected with people and had beautiful things emerge from that. And so I love hearing from readers there or people asking questions. And so those are really the three places. And you can find all of that on my website or in those individual areas. Tanmeet, thank you so much. This was such an amazing discussion. And uh, I look forward to all the continued amazing work you're doing for the world. And uh, yeah, look forward to continued dialogue. So thank you again. Oh, thanks, Nicole. Thanks for having me. This was really so great. I love being connected to more of my South Asian community who are doing good work. So thank you. Absolutely. Thanks again. Thanks so much for listening. And I hope you enjoyed that episode. For more of these types of conversations, please visit us at untetheryourlife.co. You can also find us on Instagram at untetheryourlife, as well as on Apple, Spotify, and other platforms by searching for Untether Your Life. And if you did enjoy this episode, please leave us a review or share it with someone who might also benefit. Thanks, and until the next time we meet, stay untethered.